Hello, and welcome to On Staging, a community theater-focused discussion podcast highlighting the development and staging of community theater productions in Calgary and the surrounding area. I'm Kyle Gould, and today I'm talking about Dudney Players Presents Henry V, The Battle for France, The Stirring Tale of Two Kingdoms at War, translated from the original Shakespearean, which I will come back to being at odds with the word translated, but whatever, we'll continue on into modern English. This retelling features duels, battles, tragedy, comedy, and heroism, showcasing the realities of medieval warfare. Led by Peter Duke in his directorial debut and produced by Katie Furnell, the cast of Henry V is excited to bring a wide range of characters to life this winter. Opening January 12th through the 27th, I am overjoyed to welcome back to the podcast for her third time, Katie Furnell. It's producer. me! <laughs> Kelly Kozak for her second time as the costumer for the production, and for his very first time, Peter Duke. So, my very first question is, why Henry V? I've always been a huge history fan. Uh, I minored in it in university. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of money to be made in it, unless you're really, really good at it. I'm not that good at it. And Henry V always struck me as... You know, it, it, it's it's a great play, but it, you ask the average person on the street, you know, who's not a theatre fan about Shakespeare plays, it's not going to be one of the ones that comes to their mind. But it's an incredible story. And if you mention to certainly any British person, Agincourt, they'll they'll know the story. They'll they'll have a rough background knowledge of the story. And I think when you dive into it, it really makes for a an interesting one, especially given the the way our perception of of that war has changed. I think some people find it a bit uh, opaque, uh, especially with the 400 years distant language. And I wanted to bring the story to a modern audience in a way that more people could engage with. So where did you get this translated version of Henry V? I did it. So you did it, mm -hmm. but it's not translated. Like th the, everything from Henry V is in English. It's completely intelligible in the original Shakespearean yes. language. So why yes would you call it no. a translation as opposed to a modernization? My background is I, I majored in languages. So I actually have worked as a, a translator. In so did you major in linguistics or did you major in English specifically? What, what do you mean by languages? Germanistic was the, the degree. So German with French. And I worked as a translator in Berlin and France, uh, Bordeaux, for a long time. And what does strike me is that it is technically English, but you are on the threshold of mutual intelligibility uh, with Shakespeare. I would say Chaucer um, is the breaking point for oh, that, yeah. not Shakespeare. Yeah, it, like, you can understand him, but you are, whereas with Chaucer, you, you do need a, a reference guide. Uh, you get to the point where, for example, men of grosser blood, Technically, grosser still means, can mean larger, but today's English has evolved to the point that grosser doesn't mean larger at all. Well, it can. Um, it still has that reference point. It's just not, not the immediate or the first definition you'll find in mm -hmm. the dictionary. But I think that my frame of reference is what the average person on the street would engage with and would understand. Hmm. Even the, the language structure, obviously... A lot of it is iambic. So did you remain, did it remain in iambic pentameter or no, is it? It's entirely wow. modern prose, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you really aren't doing Henry V. Uh, so the, the scene structure and the 
the dialogue is still largely what Shakespeare wrote. But yeah, it, it has been translated. It's, it's not his original... Modernized. Pro- yeah. Yeah, definitely, assuredly not translated. Like, we can't use that as our de- base definition, can we? Can we say translated when it's all English in the first place? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel like this is a, a conversation for historical uh, linguists. I, don't... I, also, I also have two comments on that one let's jump in i want to get to this the heated most heated my podcast has ever been which i I don't mean to be direct on it but like let's go let's go yeah i want to fight (laughs) i think one from a more comical standpoint and one from a um, pretty serious standpoint i think the argument that it is translated the joke answer could be there is a scene that is in french in the original henry v right and we have translated that to english and then they are learning english but teaching german in the place of english so in that way there is actually a scene that is 100 percent translated so by technicality yes we okay. have technically translated <laughs> and then the other comment, the more serious one, is saying that by moving it into modern English is not doing Henry V. That would be arguing that Henry V didn't actually exist. And this is actual history and these things actually did happen. So what else would you call it than Henry V? And it is in modern English is the way that we're saying it. Yeah, in modern English. I fully, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm directly behind the modern English. I just don't think it's a translation from my perspective. But maybe I'm splitting hairs <laughs> and have far too much skin in the game when it comes to this. I do have a degree from the University of Calgary in English focused in Shakespeare. So I have a lot <laughs> I have a lot where it's like I fought to understand these things and come to these these understandings and a lot of the words that are in there are only words at all because he invented them. And I think it's doing a disservice. So is it really, is it Shakespeare's Henry V or is it just Henry V? It's the same scene structure as Henry V. Uh, right. So it's the same version of telling the story, the same pieces falling together that uh, Shakespeare did use with the exception of the last act, which we have changed. Right. So the, I mean, I'm sure you're aware that Henry V of Shakespeare's play isn't historically accurate for the time right no so it is still yeah we haven't tried to do an accurate retelling of history it's still shakespeare's take on henry v a little less of his uh pandering to the elizabethan court but like like katie says still largely the same scene structure uh we removed act five mostly for time constraints because the original play didn't have any combat scenes in it right and so we've added a dozen of those and also just because it's it's a, it's a change in tone which makes sense change in pace which makes sense if you're not doing a play with stage fighting but once we've added it in to then suddenly go to this final act of kind of courtly drama and romance for mm-hmm. want of a better word um just was very weird it was a strange u turn to be taking interesting okay so henry 5th <laughs> yes i'll come back to why because uh, we got a, a rather loquacious, eloquent history connecting it to it. Mm-hmm. But why Henry V and not, say, Henry IV Part One or Henry IV Part Two or Richard II, all of which came before in this tetralogy of Shakespeare's? What is it about Henry V that brought this and how did it come to Dudney? So the reason Henry V is, I feel like it's one of the more easily self-contained stories. It starts... I mean, obviously, there's always context to everything, but it starts with you know, the young king, the, the mon- not the monomyth, but you know, he, uh, he has to prove himself. 
he travels to France. You know, he sets out on this quest. He overcomes these obstacles at the beginning. He kind of finds himself, and that's that. You know, he conquers his demons. He conquers the enemy. He proves himself. But if I can just jump in, a lot of the relative points and the relative comments to Henry V, mm-hmm. especially with regards to the characters, there's not a lot of establishment or development of many characters, especially their relationships, because so many of them are established from Henry IV, Part One, Henry IV, Part Two, as well as Richard II, all of which during Shakespeare's time, like that would have been run as a tetralogy. This is mm. the final chapter in this. And everyone in the crowd would have been well aware in the modern equivalent of like, you don't go see the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king before you've seen the two towers or before you've seen the Fellowship of the Ring, because while it does make sense as a engaged entire movie it's not as relevant or useful or it doesn't have as much foundation built upon it because everyone's already got an established relationship well then you could say the same about the previous plays in that you wouldn't go and see the fellowship of the ring and then not see the rest because we are community theater so as popular as i am with the board right now (laughs) i couldn't convince them to give me three back to back four back to back to do did you try? Uh, <laughs> or you're like, I don't think I can even get this. I'm on the board now. So, I mean, maybe we can uh, get rid of Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> Just a minute. Uh, yeah. For the same reason, you you, you could, could have started the, at the beginning. But, yeah. Um, Had you wanted to, did you consider it at all? No, I think Henry V was my first go-to because it's a bit more black and white. And it's one where we almost had to, like I say, we, we did have to tone down the, the jingoism. I mean, the original play was basically... Haha, <laughs> the French are terrible. Yeah, of course. But um, yeah, I, we felt that it was the most easily self-contained. And it was something a bit different from some of the more, I don't want to say prestigious, but the more well-known Shakespeare plays. Because yeah, that is also our bread and butter, like community theatre. Judy in particular does do quite a few. I mean, You've, have you done one? You've done, have you done one with Shakespeare, with Judy that isn't Shakespeare yet? Okay, no, do, I haven't. No, I've you've done, done other, 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 yes. other companies without, but yeah. So they do do a lot of Shakespeare, so we didn't want to tread any old ground either. Because I told them to start doing Shakespeare. <laughs> right. So you say they do a lot of Shakespeare, but this is an actually pretty recent thing for Dude Need mm. to step into the world of Shakespeare and not have to pay rights for shows, mm-hmm. which Absolutely. they have been doing for years and years and years and years, and then stepping into, I think Macbeth was their first. Was it, it was, not? yes. Yeah. yeah. So they love what they're doing with with Shakespeare and I think the audiences are responding and I very much enjoyed my my witnessing of Sir Andrew Agincourt last year in May walking around like a foppish fool um, <laughs> played by the indomitable Kelly Kozak who is also sitting here very quietly <laughs> so let's let's move around the table a bit how did you get involved with Henry V when when did that happen I was somewhere out in Brooks with my husband at a uh, car parts farm. (laughs) He was looking for a part for his truck. And I'm sitting there and I get a a message from Peter saying, Hey, uh, Katie and I were wondering if you would be interested in costuming Henry V. And I said, tell me the dates. And he sent me the dates. And I said, sure, I got nothing going on. That sounds fun. (laughs) Have you done costuming previously? I had done some costuming. So I worked in a wardrobe for Cirque du Soleil in Vegas Mm -hmm. for a while. So not formally trained in costuming, but I had learned a whole lot when I worked there and was always interested in sewing. I was always making stuff when I was growing up and kind of, you know, sewing from patterns and then doing my own patterns and 
But this is this is the first Shakespeare play that I was asked to to costume manage. And, you know, he, Peter sent me the breakdown. Here's what we're thinking. We're doing a modern English traditional costuming. Um, so is it modern English in modern times or? No, they, the setting is still medieval. Oh, okay. It's just a contemporary speech. And so the challenge for me was, A, with community theater and having a, a, not an astronomical budget, trying to find costumes for a cast of 14, I think. Mm-hmm. Which is small for Henry V. Yes, we, yeah. we trimmed well, it down a lot. So, Because, I mean, I think the cast of characters is 28. I think it's bigger than that if you count everyone he specifically mentions, but people yeah. who speak is, yeah, around the 28. That Which is phenomenally large mm-hmm. as a cast. And we can never fit that in the RPAC venue. I mean, that you can't use. even have, like, like you wouldn't, all of the pews would be full of actors waiting for <laughs> waiting their for the <laughs> to speak. <laughs> yeah. In some of the court scenes, especially. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So when was this? When did this happen in Brooks? When you get this? Gosh, this, this was in... It would have been around August. August or September. Yeah. Yes, I think August. Okay. So August or September is when you got brought on board. When did you get involved, Katie? During Twelfth Night that Peter started poking me, asking me to be involved in the project. Dutney has a system where they like to, with a first time brand new director, have a directing mentor for the director that's coming in. And it's usually listed as co-directed. But Peter did want the full credit of director, which I completely understand, and also wanted me to take more of a role of control over other aspects, because Peter likes to shake things up. And he wanted things to be what does that mean? Uh, run... I- a bit. I didn't realize uh, the, there was a oh there is co- a yes. co-director argument. I I just thought you were being producer. I didn't. If you <laughs> I you could be co-director. I've never had <laughs> no, the, no 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 no. I never, never wanted to the, be co-director. No, <laughs> but there's like a system that they've used in the past, which is part of why you uh, were able to get it through the board so easy, is because you had a director that they'd used before involved as it was your very first time directing ever. If it's not, if it's your first time directing with Dutney, but not your first time directing, you can easily go in and just direct a show with Dutney. But if it's your first time directing ever, they want you to kind of show. So you're on the board for Dutney now. How many shows and productions have you done with Dutney? With Peter? Dutney? I've been in two and this is my third. This is your third production. And mm-hmm. how much community theater or other theater stuff have you done historically? I've done a bunch back in England. Um, I can't count, but I've produced a couple. I've never directed Are they called before. Amdrams still mm-hmm. in England? Oh, yeah. that's cute. Isn't that yeah. fun? I love that title. <laughs> that is cute. Yeah. yeah. So you've done uh, a bunch of Amdrams mm-hmm. in England, and yeah. had you directed there as well, or just... No, I've produced, but never directed, and then acted, of course, as well. Okay. This is a big step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm floored that... Uh, that Katie's just your producer and that you have no, like there's seems like you have very little oversight for something that is so huge and you've written yourself. So Yeah. And in that I am there to guide him on times. I'll oftentimes like slip something across the table to him or I'll grab the paper, write a note and give it back to him so that he can use suggestions. But at the same time, it's not my vision. It's not my show. So Peter's... Um, but there's certain things like uh, that actor's back is currently to the audience while exactly. they're telling their lines. Um, the, you might want to have them turn. A common one is they're in a line. In a line, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. I mean, is there really any other way to stand in the RPAC? Not than really. In a line? There's <laughs> actually, that is a struggle as well. It's like, come forward. I know that. <laughs> like, it literally looks like a, like a police lineup section has been placed <laughs> in a church. And now you get to go and watch a show that is basically a police lineup. 
It's a beautiful venue. We all love it very much. Hey, it's it's not bad for what it is, but it, it's great for like an, a small acoustic band or a sketch comedy it's troupe. There's great like three for stand up or, yeah. you know, you have a yeah, stand up would be a great comment for that, too. But uh, f- how Full many people? 14, 14. Eight, 14 people production are all 14 on stage together at some point. We have a 12 person fight scene. Yeah, twelve person. It's eleven. Fight. It's eleven. It's an eleven. eleven. Well, Peter's in it too. Uh, an eleven <laughs> person fight scene. Mm-hmm. Yes, with no. swords. Y- oh, yes, and spears but and to be fair, a long bone. That particular <laughs> fight is not actually what it, it sounds like. It's insanity and crazy, but the fights are happening very small, independent. It it's kind of cheating and using the fact that it's like, oh, it seems like there's 11 people fighting on stage, but actually it's very controlled sort of one at a time movements. And it's very careful in that way. It's also very short. I think the whole thing lasts about 30 seconds of it's like two moves from each person. That's a long fight scene. Yeah. Just period. 30 yeah. seconds is long for a fight scene yes. anyway. So um, from experience, yes. having had an over 30 second fight scene in Shakespeare yes. in Love uh, with Megan Baldry, that was insane. It went on for what felt like forever. And for the audience was a swish, 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 done. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, oh, that was fast. Yeah. And so. But it was so many moves and took us three months to learn. Yes. And I guess that's a big difference is ours is for each actor. It's not so many moves at all. It's that's wild. Hit. So how many fight rehearsals have you had and who's your fight choreographer? Me. And are you a chore like are you a normally a fight choreographer? Do you have your training um, with swords and So other I things? do have a lot of training in various weapons and everything like that. I have most of the weapons that we use here I hadn't used before. The broadsword and the hand to hand I had, but um so that was fun to learn those. Uh, but I've normally always done it on more of the actor side of fight choreography. So I've been part of it. I've had to choreograph, I guess, for schooling. When I was at Red Deer College, we had Thomas Usher as our teacher, and he was a, like, extraordinaire, just a master with almost every weapon. And so he taught us, I guess we had, like, months of learning various weapons. And also have I've done, because of that, a lot of our shows had extensive fight scenes in that time. But choreography for it, the only other experience I have is Twelfth Night, um, which, which was... Which is really not even. Not really. Because <laughs> I've seen... Yeah. I watched that. You watched like, how we did that. <laughs> These two people do not know how to use a sword. And that that that, that was very clearly, <laughs> slowly done and art- articulated, which was yes. great too. So were you involved at all in Twelfth Night, Peter? No. No. So you were involved in Macbeth. And what was your other production? Uh, Full Monty. Full Monty. Great. So you've been with Dudney for a while. Mm-hmm. How did Henry V come to pass? Had you already written it? And when did, did you write it well before that? Or have you did you approach the board to say, this is something I'd like to do? I approached the board. When did that happen? It, it was a long process. It was about uh, a year out. And we floated a couple of different ideas. We were also looking at a modernization of The Three Musketeers. We ended up going with Henry V because we thought it would land better with audiences. And also, I, I love Damas, but making sense out of some of his writing is very difficult. Uh, he famously had a lot of continuity errors. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was just having fun with it. It's right? a really big book. Yeah, like it's gonna. And no one's sitting there with a you yeah. know wiki doc telling him what's right and wrong. Yeah. and I'm not too sure how well edited it was. So he got to just. 
He was just having fun with it. Write right? what he wanted to write when he felt like it. Yeah. I mean, and, it's fun. The Musketeers, everybody loves oh, yeah. them. <laughs> Have you read it or just seen Just the... seen everything okay, yeah. and I... just enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've read it. The version I read had uh, an index explaining all the cultural references and it, it's a lot as well. It's the amount of work to have, have... We were looking at it and we thought that's too much to try and... Too much exposition to fit into a, a stage play. Oh, yeah. No, it's ridiculous. But I've I've seen a first edition copy of both it and Les Misérables at oh. uh, in the British National mm-hmm. Museum, so wow. which is like a giant book section, and then you're just walking around. And sometimes you'll happen to spot really cool books, but that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> all under lock and key. Apparently, you can like borrow them if you're an accredited person who requires such need of the first edition of something. So how do you get accredited? I have no idea. <laughs> it's just what I, I overheard a tour guide mention it as we were walking through. I was like, like, you can borrow what? these? What? I mean, it's a library. So at that point, it should be eligible for borrowing. And all of the books there are, are on loan to them and have to have like specific documents to that allows the British National Museum to have them nowadays. Otherwise, they'd have to go back to their the country mm-hmm. of origin. Mm-hmm. So Wow. I feel like if yet we, another thing the English have stolen from the French. Yes. <laughs> I feel like if we have to ask how we get accredited to borrow them, we don't get accredited to borrow them. <laughs> oh, I think that if you're doing your some postdoc in English uh, on something like a translated works from French, then you would probably want to see a first edition, and that would be an accessible space mm-hmm. to get it. But it was anyway. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> so it's been a year plus. Mm-hmm since you started talking to Dudney about it. Yeah. Did they come to you or did you go to them? I went to them. You went to them. And who did you talk to first? So Ed Sands, he's been kind of the primary contact with Dudney. We kind of like discussed a couple of potential play ideas, which slots, you know, they don't have a, a formal rusty yet, but kind of they try and do certain types of plays in certain slots. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we kind of firmed it up. And then he said, okay, well, you know, I, I sent him a sample. Uh, I'd, I'd done a couple of scenes, so this is what it would look like. He said, okay, go away and do the rest. So we did. How much time did that take? About two months. Two months. Mm-hmm. of Well, I mean, you have a full-time job doing full-time <laughs> job things. I doubtlessly have other extracurriculars yeah. and whatnot in your life. But how long did it really take? Like how many, how many hours, hours would you really put down to it? 20, 30, somewhere around there? Yeah, roughly about around that. That's a solid, dedicated amount of your time. Mm-hmm. Did anybody have to edit it? Did you hand that off to anybody else to have them review and look it through? Or like Alexandra Dumas, did you just be like, and <laughs> eh, that's done? So, uh, yeah, I did have uh, my wife had a look at it, and then I had a friend back in the UK take a look. But then we have also, as we ran through the play, we kind of approach it as like a, a group exercise in that because it's contemporary English, when actors felt that a line could be delivered a different way. Right. Or didn't perhaps make sense to them. We were kind of open to discussion about that. No, so. that's kind. Then that was just in the very beginning rehearsals. I would have imagined you'd locked that down pretty quick after yeah. that. Yeah, we came up after about the first month, I'd okay. say, was when we then had the, the final edition with the changes that people had come up with. You know, some people uh, would you just think of a different way to deliver things, a different way of phrasing things. I think one of yours, for example... You have and a line. He's plant speaking my... to Kelly right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Kelly uh, also plays York in the yes. play. The, oh, wow. Um, the Prince of England? Yeah, the King's younger brother. <laughs> yeah. So the next in line. Uncle. Uh, uncle, right? No, that's yeah, Exeter. Right. Well, isn't York also Henry V's uncle? Or is... He's his brother. Yeah, historically, it's 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 confusing a bit. Histor- like, e- even when I was doing research on the Duke of York, 
there's well first of all there's so many richards and so many edwards and so many yes. you know and it's just the first and the second and the third and what i can surmise is that york historically was a cousin of henry that would make sense henry five yeah. but uh yeah there's there's just there's a it's just chaos it's just chaos with that family but thankfully Especially with changed names and whatnot, too, upon assumption of kings, kingship and whatnot, right, too. So. Right. But I think I only have like 23 lines, which is great because I don't <laughs> have a ridiculous amount of lines to memorize and I can focus on costuming more. <laughs> do you have a lot of choreography? A lot of fighting? I do have a lot of fighting. And the fights, let me tell you, it's so much fun. Katie's just done such a phenomenal job with choreographing these fights and just quickly go to the washroom and yeah. then we can get her own honest <laughs> yeah, opinion on this real, like, <laughs> real like, opinion but it's just it's so much fun and with all of these weapons i've done hand-to-hand before on stage but i've never other than 12th night i have never used a weapon on stage before like that and i get to do hand-to-hand as well and i mean we've kind of turned york into this really dirty fighter which is oh, good. so fun so dirty um <laughs> you're mean yeah i am so mean but i just it's so physical um which i love i think just being a dancer i just love the physicality of it as well yeah and it's absolutely. so fun to learn the fights and just rehearse them over and over and over and over and over and i'm like yes more 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 let's do it again <laughs> I can't. I'm tired. Yes, you no, no. I'm tired. Let's go again. Well, I hope you stop when you start to get tired because the whole thing is about control. Yes. 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 It sounds like sometimes you're like, no, it's so much fun. <laughs> Murder. Kelly. No, Kelly's never, never been that problem. <laughs> oh, that's good. So lots of fight choreography. Kelly's involved as both York and your costumer. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your audition process as we led into Henry V. What did you ask of people and how did you feel about auditioning people for your very first time? Uh, It was fun. So I have auditioned for other people before. I've I've been a producer and sat in on auditions, but it's never kind of been on my head we we and your first word was it was fun it was was fun was like like you're just putting it out there or was no i i enjoyed it it's um sitting in judgment yeah i mean it's it's like interviewing people for work except it's a fun thing not sitting in a cubicle afterwards (laughs) so they're excited to be there we were blessed that we actually had given we had such a large cast we had more people audition than we had spots which oh wow! You don't always get with community theater. So you had a bunch of people come out for the for the show. How many days were auditions? Auditions. We did two auditions, and then we did accept a couple of taped ones as well. So we did two afternoons, just blocks of drop-ins. Uh, we had people read prepared speeches from Aragon's speech at the Black Gate um, from Lord of the Rings, and we had them then read again. But we would give each actor we'd request that they do it in a different tone mm-hmm. one that didn't necessarily match the subject matter to try and get an idea of how well they could adapt especially if we were then trying to see what they could where we could slot them in what we thought they would be suited for so for example uh one of the people we were considering for the dauphin we asked them to read it sarcastically as if they didn't believe aragon's speech as the dauphin does yeah and then we did uh, some um some scene work Right, we printed off a few different scenes from a couple of different movies, paired people up into twos or threes and had them kind of go at it, switch around a bit, see how they bounced off each other, see how their chemistry worked, especially with the way we cut down the characters. There's a couple of kind of clusters mm-hmm. that we needed to make sure that people would mesh together. And I think by and large, 
the cast. I mean, you're in the cast. <laughs> you guys getting on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. So who all was in the sitting room what, being a part of the auditions with yourself? It was myself, Katie, uh, as the co-director slash producer slash fight choreographer. Directing mentor. Directing mentor slash As Archer. producer. Slash. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Slash producer slash choreographer. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you're the producer. You have to wear all these other hats. Exactly. <laughs> and then, Any hat that's not being worn, that's mine. Uh, it's your job to either fill it with another head or do it yourself. Exactly. And then uh, Patrick, our stage manager, sat in on one. And then my wife sat in on another Patrick's unavailable. She was um, Sebastian in Twelfth Night. She's actually been with Junior longer than I have. So, and was their advice and their choices on people was oh, it helpful, yeah. or were you saddled with making all of the final decisions yourself, or was it just a committee? Useless. They did not. No, it was great. It was uh, we we had a, a couple an hour session after each one, you know, with spreadsheets and trying to figure out who would go where and what we wanted to see from people. So it was very much. Um, did you have to fight? For anyone you believed in, that you know, they'll be like, no, Katie, it has to be this person. I, I believe in them. I think we had a couple of, I think after the first day, yeah, we it had, has to be York. Well, we had a couple of different, we kind of had like two potential routes we could go down. And then when Luke came in and auditioned on the second day for us, um, who is now our Henry, we were almost annoyed because it, we were like, he has to be Henry and it ruined all the work that we'd done the previous day Oh, because you made some plans based on who you'd seen already and then another person shows up and they're phenomenal yeah like okay this is what we're doing i think this is a really good time peter to lean into one of the difficulties that you had with cast as far as one of the pitfalls of community theater and a large cast is people's lives get in the way of things. And we had a few actors that after casting, even though we had enough people to fill all the roles, we suddenly started having the, oh, we've got to recast this one because somebody left. And do you want to talk to that experience of recasting and how we ended up where we ended up? So one thing we want, I wanted to do with this one was push and get a, some fresh blood in Judney. I mean, it's community theatre in a small town, so you do see a lot of the same faces. But especially with a big cast, we had the opportunity to expand and, and get some new people on board. And we have. We've got some really good new faces who are really, really pulling out all the stops and doing amazing. So we, we posted in a few more places than we normally would uh, with the audition notices. And we got a bunch of people, about half our auditionees were new to Judney. Unfortunately, we had you know we had one person drop out the first day because I don't think they realised it was unpaid community theatre. <laughs> that <laughs> Which, happens. Uh, we had one well-known member who just medical concerns had to drop out. They want to get hit in the head with a sword <laughs> by yeah. Kelly. I understand. Yeah, they were just terrified. It's definitely a medical concern. <laughs> so mean. <Yeah. laughs> so that was unfortunate. And then we had someone else who was new to Dudney audition for another play at the same time. That happens too. Went for them. So that was. Uh, a bit of a headache. Lie, that happens all, all the, the time. time, especially in community theater. Mm-hmm. If I get a better role, not me, I have never done that. So, <laughs> but if like somebody is auditioning for a role and you give them a secondary lead role and they audition for another show, mm-hmm. goes up around the same time and they get the lead, they're going to dump your show. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, that's just what's that's best just... for them in the moment. It really hurts them down the road, though, because then they look like, Wishy-washy. you know, washy. Yep. This is not a job. This is something you're going to do for a short amount of time. And you need to make sure you're set up for the next thing down the road. And it will make people who are less inclined to cast you in the first place, knowing mm-hmm. that you might just very well dump them. I completely agree with you. Yeah. yeah. It's it's an interesting industry just 
theater in general, the the fact that you can burn a bridge and not even notice that you burned it until let you're alone, trying to cross it later. <laughs> let alone unpaid bridges. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in professional realm, you sign that contract, you're not doing something else. No. You're not breaking the contract. But in this realm, in this world, it there's, happens. It, it seems like there's no penalty for breaking the contract in yeah. the community theater world. But anyway, but yeah. It's there all is. social. <laughs> but go to the how you filled those holes. Yeah. So we did have more people audition than needed. We were very lucky. So we are well founded in our establishment in terms of fight coordinators because we have Casey who's been fantastic. Luke, our uh, King Henry, uh, is big in HEMA and also has lots of stage fighting training. Sorry, what's HEMA? It's the, you might have seen you know, when they do medieval tournaments and jousting and stuff, guys get dressed up in real kind of a replica plate armor and beat on each other. It's huh. almost treated like a sport. He's big into that as well as being a trained actor with stage experience. So he's helped a lot. Yeah, look it up. It's really cool. And then Mark, who is our Captain Flewellen and our Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, also briefly a French language tutor. He wanted to audition with us and we were really excited to have him, but he thought he wouldn't have enough time. And then we cast and... Then things changed around with some of our cast members, just as he came back to us and said, good news, I have the time to be in a play. And we went, well, fantastic. You're in. We have space now. We'd been hoping to get him during auditioning, but the stars just hadn't aligned. And then they realigned and we, we got Mark back. We got a couple of uh, late joiners who we've worked with before and they're fantastic. And they've really, even coming in late, they've, they've put the work in and just fantastic, fantastic crew. Team. That is very interesting. How did that impact your schedule for putting together rehearsals? Oh, scheduling. Yeah, with 14 people with community theater where you can't find them, <laughs> especially over the Christmas period. You know, we had to take a break for Christmas because we're not going to ask people to skip out on Christmas for this. Uh, we yeah, did I'll just jump in here while you say that, mm -hmm. too, because that's true for every show. Every mm -hmm. show yeah. that begins their audition process prior to or in early December mm -hmm. always has to put a pause on if their show goes up in yeah. January or February. So there's always that 10 day to two week pause that no matter what, has to occur. Mm -hmm. You can't do a show and then insist that actors no. are there over that time because they won't. No. They're they, it's, yeah. a, it's just they'll just not come. Ascribed piece of the social social contract that says like you know no it's I'm Christmas, not yeah. gonna be here over that period. Easter yeah. similar in some ways that Easter weekend, but there is something about those last ten days of uh, December that just basically says no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine and yeah. fair and valid oh, when yeah. you plan for it. However, it does mean your first rehearsal back, which may have been yesterday or it was, or, well, yesterday. It was yesterday for you guys. Yeah. How rough was that first rehearsal back? There was a bit of creaking. There was a bit of rust, but they shook it off pretty well. I think. How was the fight? You the fights were the one you were more concerned about, right? Yeah, we we made them go back to an early rendition of fight call where we would start way slower before we got up to show speed because that's just the safer way. To do it. We do a fight call before, we're going to do one before every show and run these fights before every show, but so that we don't exhaust everybody. When we were leading into the run yesterday, we took a good hour to just remember the fights. And it's yeah. like, let's do the fights. Let's get weapons back in our hands. Let's feel that. Let's go slow. 
Let's go a little bit faster. Let's go a little bit faster. Let's go a little bit faster. Okay, good. Now, <laughs> go put your weapons away. Let's do the next fight. 25, so, 50, show yeah, speed. Exactly. And show speed is 80 speed or 75 70, speed. 70. Show speed is 70. 70 or 80. <laughs> I mean, it depends what the fight is, too. Yeah. But it's you know 80. It should never be more than, and it should definitely not be all out, Kelly Kozak. <gasps> yeah, Kelly you're the worst offender. Just kidding. <laughs> no, we do have one that I like in the middle of the fight, I'll be like, I said 50. Right. This is just a 50. You need to have somewhere to go. Yeah. To that end, though, where's all the swords and whatnot and paraphernalia coming from? Is there a props manager or a fight? Did you have to pull out all these things yourself? Yeah. So it's kind of a mix. We have uh, a bunch of stuff from Dark Age Creations. All of our swords are bought by Dutney. Kind of a product of us renting them for so long for Macbeth, we ended up buying the swords. Then COVID happened and there was this whole thing of when were they going to pick up the swords? And it was kind of just an account that we have these swords that we can go get. Then Ed, who kind of does a lot of that stuff for Dutney, went and picked up a whole bunch of swords. So we ended up with a swords of various length that we could use there. We also have maces, which, uh, are made wow. of foam because oh, okay. we will never, <laughs> never use a real mace on stage, everybody. Never use a real mace on stage. We also have axes also made of foam. Wait, a mace spears. is just a big stick with a metal ball at the end. Yes. That's yes. what you're referring to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, you can't like, fake hitting with no. that. Mm-hmm. And if you lose control with that, you're going to kill somebody. So we're not going to even let that happen. Um, a sword can do some damage if you lose control of it too, but it's less like you'll lose lunges. control. Yeah. That's that's the worry with a sword. Exactly. We also have some spears, which again, foam. So we have Cassandra Thurbjörnson is making all of those foam weapons, basically with a cosplay kind of approach to those weapons. And then the pieces that are going up against other weapons are the actual wooden dowel. And they don't actually get used as an axe at any time because the axe head is not real. So let's talk about the labor of the costumes, because there are 14 performers. But there is a heck of a lot more than 14 characters in this show, let alone costume changes. Or are there any cost? Does Henry change clothes at all? Or is he always in the same outfit? He's pretty much in the same base clothing. He might put on a jerkin or a cloak over top, which is kind of the theme for this show as well. So everyone has a base clothing, basically just black pants and your typical period style shirt. Most of them we're renting from the costume shop. We do have some in-house Dooney in the hall um, that we're utilizing. There are a couple other costume pieces like Princess Catherine dress that we're renting from uh, the costume shop as well and a couple other pieces. But the, the one of the challenges costume-wise for the show was with the budget that we have and the inventory that we have or don't have, it's virtually impossible to stay true to period. Oh, absolutely. Just like Peter has taken artistic liberties with the dialogue and flow of the show um, and characterization, we had to do the same thing with costuming as well. Um, So people will be wearing their own black pants that they (laughs) will be supplying themselves. (laughs) Things aren't going to be 100%, you know, accurate. No, it's hard. I mean, especially with like shoes, footwear is especially going to be an improbability of finding period footwear. Absolutely. So, you know, people are just going to have to overlook that maybe there is a zipper on a boot. That's... <laughs> or buttons. If they're not, then I'm, I'm disappointed in the them. Pockets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things like that. But the main challenge is just costuming the amount of people for a period 
piece and what you can overlook. What do you, what integrity do we want to keep and what can we sacrifice? And how many people do you have helping you in your costume team? Crickets. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no one or? As far as making and managing, it's pretty much just me. I didn't have to build really any garments. I'm building foam armor pieces. Right. Pauldrons and the miter for the archbishop. And you're doing all of that yourself? Yes. Yeah. Do you have nothing else to do in your life? No. Is that like... I really just... don't. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That is an insane amount of labor and work to it is. undertake all on your own. And you haven't got anyone else in the background assisting and helping and designing. No, and I mean, I could, if I wanted, I could. I okay. could for sure delegate yeah. and say, hey, could you make a couple of these things for me? But So I, yes, I could say, hey, so-and-so, can you build me some of these things? So but I also like to do things myself. This is my first time making foam armor out of EVA. Right. I've never done this before. <laughs> and my husband makes fun of me all the time because anytime I have a big project, he's like, oh, yeah, your whole theme is I've never done this before. Let's do it. Let's try a whole new <laughs> technique. I do that with baking. I do it with everything. And I think part of it is just because I'm curious and I like to learn and I I just like to make things and figure out how to do it. So the process has been really fun for me and interesting. I don't find it that stressful unless something doesn't turn out right. But who's the best dressed character in the production? Is it going to be York? No, actually. <laughs> you know what? Oh, Here's the wait, thing about York's being... cloak. <laughs> it's great. Oh, the, the, fur, the fur sheepskin. Here's the thing about being in a show that you're also costuming is you put yourself last because you're just concerned that it every, you need to dress everybody else. And then you're like, oh, yeah, wait, I need pants. Wow. You're so, not a Canadian yet, but that's a very Canadian sensibility <laughs> right there. Like, oh, no, no, no. Everyone's so much more important than me. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, oh, I'll just measure mine later. Let's make sure I'm, I'm at rehearsal. We I need to these measure. people here now. I'm, I'm always exactly. in my own body. Yeah, For I sure. get that. Yeah. I get that. How many hours of labor has this been? I don't know. I probably should have counted. It's probably over 100 by now. Just with designing and patterning and shopping for fabrics which why are, is fabric so expensive in canada like it's, it's just expensive period everything's it's expensive crazy seven dollars for a jug of milk now so mm -hmm. I mean, yeah yeah you want a yard of fabric how many jugs of milk is that i was shocked i was shocked and i went to the fabric store so many times before i even bought anything because i wanted to make sure right that a i found the right fabric and b i found the right price <laughs> yeah it's hard yeah so yes, lots and lots and lots of hours. You're closing in on being done. The show goes up very soon. Yes. Like eight days from now. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, would you do it again? Yeah. And have you learned enough to involve other people in their time <laughs> job next time? Well, uh, yeah, no, so, <laughs> I, for sure. I think it depends on who. Like I know like Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie is very crafty. Oh, Anne-Marie yeah. Cotton. She's very, very crafty. So I think 
I could definitely utilize her in the future if she was able and willing to put the time in because she's she's also very curious about how things work. Another thing costumers do is sewing bees. They put together and get a group of people together and then you do the all of the pauldrons and all of the things all at once while you're supervising and administrating. I know that a lot of other shows have had success in putting those together if they can get the people to come out to their sewing bees. Right. That would be something to consider for the future. Yes. The next time you have to make, what are you going to do with all armor of these, bees. Ar- all this faux armor when you're done? <laughs> yeah, I know. You're going to have to direct another one, Peter. Yeah. Come this is where, this do, where Richard, the, the, starting with Richard II, yeah. would have worked really we're, well we're really for good. costuming. <laughs> we could do the George Lucas style and just go chronologically backwards and then skip way into the future. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it is a wonderful habit of Dutney to be like, this was everything we needed for this show. What if we do something kind of similar to it again and hoard, Um, which is a bad habit that is also a good habit, but only when it comes in handy. And only when you have the space and it doesn't cost you to have it. To that end, have you made use of things from Macbeth that pulled across into Henry V? Well, the swords were the big thing that we were able to use, the weaponry and stuff like that. But... As far as costumes are concerned, the way we did Macbeth was everybody was in a modern day black and they had something red on their person. And it just doesn't translate over. I think maybe there's one cloak that is being used in both shows that was already in Dutney's Tickle Trunk. So the brass. Well, that's good. Yes. Yeah. And so what mm-hmm. are you most excited about audiences getting to see when they walk up for the first night and you open before your opening night production. I honestly think, I think the fighting is going to surprise a lot of people. We had, um, we pulled in the RPAC staff and gave them kind of a mini preview because Katie wanted to make sure that they didn't have any objections on the day. We didn't show up to dress and they go, you can't do that in here. That's not safe. That is a necessary thing. Every producer will tell you that Mm -hmm. the the theater staff needs to be aware of what's happening and check all your swords. And they do this with lights and any flammables that you might have, things like that. Yeah. So they they came in, you know, to kind of see what we were doing and get an idea. And they loved the 11 man fight scene at the beginning. Yeah, that, that guy kind of, he turned to me, he goes, I didn't think you could do that. That was incredible. <laughs> and you're like, I hope we could do it again. Yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't know we could do it. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, we did. The goal with the fighting was rather than you have very kind of flashy stage fighting, Errol Flynn, you know, uh, rapiers. That's not possible in our pack. Exactly. We wanted a more brutal, obviously we're not going to be able to do an actual depiction of medieval combat because we need our actors for multiple times. Yeah, they have to die. Yeah. <laughs> But we wanted it to be a bit more brutal, a bit less glamorous. And I think that's come across. It is. It happens fast, a lot of it. Like you say, the 11-person the fight scene in the beginning is less than 30 seconds. Is there stage blood or no? For some of it, yes. But there's so much that, uh, so much fighting that we can't do it for every fight scene because right. the stage would become unmanageable. Oh, it would be terrible. <laughs> yeah, it would yeah. become terribly <laughs> sticky. Um, There's a reason Carrie kills everybody at the end of the show, not <laughs> yeah. at the beginning. And I mopped during Macbeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So there is a bit. It's amazing how much that uh, absorbent sand costs. The cost right. of that is just like, exorbitant. Yeah. But it's neat, necessary if you're going to... If you're going to do it. Throw blood on stage. I mean, there's lots to like about the play, but I think that's what's going to surprise people, what's going to kind of... And what's something that... Well, I'll go around the circle. So what's the most exciting thing that you were looking forward for audiences to get to see? Kelly. Um, 
Well, a couple things. I I think definitely the fights. The fights are just so cool to see. I think they're going to be and it's such a intimate venue that to see that number of people on stage fighting with weapons at once is going to be like kind of huge. Yeah. But also I think just the adaptation that Peter has done I mean, like, you know your audience, right? And so I think that's a huge part of what he's done with this show is that he's made it more relatable so people get what you're talking about. Because mm. the, the majority of audience, you know, like the audience who comes, they're typically not Shakespeare connoisseurs. They don't really know. And, and people loved The Twelfth Night. They had such a great time. People that I knew came to see the show. Like yeah. my mother-in-law was like, I had no idea what happened because she doesn't n- understand Shakespearean language. Mm. But she's like, I don't really know what happened, but it was so much fun. <laughs> right? I so, mean, she knew what happened. She knew, She kind of knew what happened. Seems but like it, I mean, yeah. Disingenuous on her part. So be like, <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, but I had fun. But, yeah, like, I was, think you did. I think you really did. It wasn't, a, it's not a very, you know, convoluted play. She knew what was going on. She just didn't understand what the dialogue right. meant. This isn't a winter's tale, okay? Yeah. Like, <laughs> But I think, you know, with the, with, with what Peter has done, it's easy to understand what's mm. happening. You don't need to be a history buff. You don't need to have, you know, understand what Shakespeare is trying to say in order to enjoy the play and know what's going on. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. So I think that's a big, that's an important part of people be able to enjoy the show full, like fully, not just go, oh, that was cool. The fight, oh, the fights were cool. Mm. But I don't know what they said. I don't know what they said. But you will know what everyone says and you will just see some really cool fights. Interesting. What are you most excited about? One of my favorite things about historical movies, uh, biopics, is that afterwards you get excited about learning that piece of history and figuring out like, oh, yeah, the movie maybe didn't talk about that, but what actually Mm. happened? And I think we're going to see some of that from this show with people who don't know the history of Henry V and then are like, oh, oh, this was this was a big deal, wasn't it? Like, did so this, this really happen? So this whole production is just driving driving eyes to the Wikipedia page. Exactly. That's your whole Wikipedia, we <laughs> support you. <laughs> kind of what I'm excited about is just the, uh, the future of people looking into Henry V and caring about that piece of history. I know we're going to have a smaller audience being in a venue that can only fit a max of 150 people at a time, and we're only doing 10 shows, but still, it's exciting to think that somebody might be looking into Henry V, which is a play that does not get a lot of credit, at least not obvious credit, the same way that Macbeth or Twelfth Night do. So, Right. Well, it's not a tragedy or a comedy, and those are the two that are focused upon in high schools. So since you only do three in high school, the likelihood of you ever getting a history from Shakespeare is very low. And then the opportunity to do Henry V... It's not a commonly done production, right? True. It, unless yeah. you're going and you just happen to be where the Royal Shakespeare Company is putting it on, even that's not a super regular occurrence, right? Because there's over 35 Shakespearean productions that he put together that has his name associated with them. The histories are generally left to the bottom of that pile. Yeah, and they will they will redo one of the more common ones before they come back to the history, so... Yeah, most likely. This is what happens with Gilbert and Sullivan as well. But nonetheless, what's something that, Kelly, that the audience might not see that you would like 
them to know about before they came. So if they, you listen to this podcast, they're going to get a chance to look for this item, this thing that happens on stage, maybe a costume piece that they might not necessarily take note of that you really want and hope that people get a chance to see. I'm not even going to say costumes because costumes, <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> these pauldrons seem like they've taken a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> the costumes are on stage for a while, so they're easier to notice. But uh, one, I think one of the fun things that we've that we've done and that Mark Holt kind of worked with us on as well, being the fight captain, is how you die because you know people just die and just go and they're, then they're done. Right. So he's like, take your time with it. Have fun, like mm. have fun with your death. And so there's some really cool deaths, not just the way that they're killed, but the way that they d take their last few moments on Earth is and it's every death is unique. I think that's something that everybody's had a lot of fun <laughs> ironically a lot of fun with dying you're such a dark human <laughs> how about for you as the you know progenitor of this mm. you put this all idea together in the first place you've rewritten everything you've had your touch on every single moment you're the director of the production as well i do want to come back to crossfitting both writing it and directing it mm -hmm. and how that you can get caught up in yourself sometimes on that but we'll come back to that in a second i want to know what's something the audience is not going to get a chance to see potentially or they might overlook that you would like to make sure they get a chance to see one thing that it would be very easy to overlook is the core that i wanted to take away from this was that it isn't just about kings and princes a lot of the players actually spent with you know, what we call affectionately the silly soldiers, the, the, the rank and file. And the battle itself was won by, by peasants. You know, they, they, they were laborers who basically they had a, a magic trick up their sleeve. They had the, the English longbow. And our actors have had a hard time, but have done really well at getting their heads around the bow. Because it's not, it works very differently to how a regular bow would work. and they really have put time and effort into, and it it's only in for like two, three scenes. Oh, wow. Right? But it's an understated part of the play, but it's an important part of the play. And it's why the play spends so much time with Henry dealing with the common people as well as with the other nobles is because it was about everyone. And you know, when you have all these swords flashing and spears and yelling, it's easy to overlook. But I think that's a really interesting one is watching the archers um, because they are, they are what won the battle in the end. And um, everything else you'll see. Everything else, like you, there's, there's so much that people have put time into. Myself, Katie, uh, even our stage manager, our, all of our fight team, our costumers, set designers, the actors have all, you know, we kind of tweaked it and, and found people's strengths. But I think if there's something people are going to miss that has had time put into it, outside of costumes, <laughs> This might be it. Is mm. is the the effort that these guys put in into figuring out how to use a, a longbow in this obscure way that was only relevant for about hundred years, right? But and it was not something you could just pick up and use. Like they no. were peasants and they were civil folk. But it was ten ten years it took it to build that muscle. Training and skills and back muscles that mm -hmm. we don't have were overpronounced in development. <laughs> these, <laughs> these people that could draw back these such high poundage bows. Mm -hmm. And yourself? A thing that I think can be easily missed because we tricked the audience into it being modern English, 
but we do at two occasions stay mm-hmm. completely word for word true to Shakespeare's original play. Oh, when's that? Well, actually, I want the audience to guess. No, um, it's, <laughs> I'm hoping it's St. Crispin's it's, Day. It's, yeah, it is St. Crispin's Day. That can't um, be. But I mean, is once more unto the breach, dear absolutely. friends? Absolutely. Once more, the two we'll close speeches. the wall up with our English dead because yep. if that isn't yep. word for word, I have. <laughs> I promise you, I'll be meeting you in the party <laughs> <Yeah>. afterwards. <laughs> you will be thrilled then. <laughs> no, we just replace that whole but speech with "Come on, let's isn't go. that the one with grosser blood?" <laughs> yes. 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 Um, but yeah, there's two Whose moments. Whose limbs were fed in England. Show us this day, the merit yeah. of your medal. Yeah. Um, those two occasions, we remain in the iambic. He falls back into it. And uh, just the, the why of that is the power that those speeches have and the way they resonate. And not just the way they resonate in the way he speaks it, but the way they resonate in that we still know once more unto the breach without even realizing that we're quoting mm-hmm. Henry V. Well, or, I do because we, in yes. university, I had to <laughs> okay, memorize yes. a speech. Yes. <laughs> and it just so happens that that was the one that I was memorized. the one. So you'll know it. You'll be like, oh, here we go. And I still know the majority of it 22 years later. Oh my God, even longer. And so you're actually hitting on exactly the part that excites me that I want the audience to fall into is when yeah. you're saying you still remember those moments. Both of these speeches mm-hmm. are about how these people are going to resonate through history. And here we are, 600 years later, doing a play that was written 200 years after and retelling their story. Yep. So the way that they resonate should be something that resonates, which is why the original Shakespeare is used in those moments. And that's something I want the audience to notice that they may not all your average just coming to the theater for fun audience member may not grasp, and I'd love for them to grasp that. Their speeches, they're meant to rally the troops and whatnot. Every time a speech is levied, even in the modern day, it does not have normal common parlance and vernacular. It is filled with allegory and, and symbolism and whatnot to further drive home their point. And it is always almost spoken in an iambic pentameter as well, because it just causes you to perk up and listen it's your heartbeat yeah or thereabout and as as many people like to say um unless you have an arrhythmia and then it does <laughs> you're like this doesn't sound right i don't understand um, how does yeah. this work <laughs> so to that end though we've got two pieces of proper shakespeare left in because mm-hmm. they're speeches and that makes perfect sense but how hard has it been because you've taken this 20 to 30 hours mm-hmm. of rewriting this using essentially what becomes your own words Mm -hmm. for something that seems to be very important and true and relevant and a part of your core person, Henry V. Otherwise, you wouldn't have chosen in the first place. Mm -hmm. How do you distance that side of you, that creative side of you that has put this thing into existence and then now take it upon yourself to direct it? Because it, it can be a blurred line between the creative creation, this is what I envisioned when I wrote it, thoughts, and you've had to then become the director of it and then see how actors are interpreting those lines and impersonating those characters, which may not have been how you saw it when you first wrote it. That's always been my fear. <laughs> Whenever I write something, I'm like, or I revise something, I'm like please direct this <sighs> because I know I would have trouble and would get into like, no, no, it has to be this way. And the, and I don't want that on the actor's part mm-hmm. or the director's part. I want the director and the actor to then take that and build it. And I'm always 
very much perturbed when I see these produced by, directed by, written by <laughs> people out there. I'm like, how is that going to be good? <laughs> so I almost had the opposite in that there were times where people would bring something new to the character. I go, that, that's great. That's brilliant. And then I go back in the evening and be like, no, no, there's a reason I wanted it that way. Mm-hmm. Part of my day job is... I've got a very boring job title called service management specialist, but it means I design tools for people. But the whole point is that I design the tools they need, not that I want to make. And so there was an element of that with the play in that you know, I built the framework and I, I, I wrote the script and I had the overall vision, but a lot of people bought their own original ideas to the yeah. characters. And I view that as almost... It's like they're doing my job for me to an extent. There were cases where I had to say, no, I get what you're trying to do, but that invalidates the character. Yeah, that's we, that's not what we need that character to be. That steps on someone else's toes. But by and large, because we weren't using the original Shakespearean, we were able to change the dialogue. Yeah. Right? So if someone says, oh, I, I prefer to say it that way, I think my character would more likely say it this way. We're not screwing up the iambic pentameter. We're not kind of, you know treading on on the bard's work because you've already done that yeah i already did that so (laughs) i really enjoyed seeing where people went because i obviously had ideas about characters yeah but also when you cast people you look well maybe they're not what i envisioned but they've bought something different to it instead and it feels natural and that's the thing about community theater is because you're going to get what you get mm -hmm. at the end of the day the people who come out on audition and the people who say i will be here for every rehearsal and i will be there to be in the show and i've committed myself to this production that's the the cost right that's the the payment that they're getting is the opportunity to be in it there's no more than that and so the flip side to it is that this is the person you have. Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't get to go hire somebody you knew to be this person. Mm-hmm. I think a, a good example in our cast of someone who's really taken their the role to be their own is uh, Brad, who is our uh, Duke of Exeter. Uh, so when I wrote the the adapted script, I had for the English nobles a more kind of a that clipped British officer, you know, the kind of 1700s, 1800s, a bit more reserved. And some of that comes across in the, in the script still. But the way Brad has kind of brought Exeter to life is he feels almost like a like a, a mountain lion, like a, a bobcat. Like he's just full of energy, pacing around the stage. And now he's done that, You, I can't picture it any other way. Oh, that's wonderful. Right? It's like when you have, you read a book and then you see a TV adaptation. And sometimes they're terrible, but sometimes you go, wow, I hadn't thought of that. But that's now how I see the character when I go back and read the book. And yeah, his exit is just fantastic. He's yeah. full of full of lightning. And... Legolas does not look like Legolas in The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> yeah. the movie, in the book. That yeah. is not... But now, now that is the only way he is One with Orlando Bloom. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, for the people who are listening to this, if you have been able to count up the countless hours involved in the production of this show. <laughs> it has been more than a year of labor and efforts on the part, not just of the three people sitting around this table here, but of countless others who are involved not in doing any costuming because Kelly wanted, nope, that's just her, <laughs> but also the support people who are at Dudney who are putting this together with Ed Sands and the rest of the board and the sheer number of volunteers that Dudney has at their beck and call these days to help put things together. That's just <laughs> yes. wonderful. But it should give you an investment 
to come and sit and buy a ticket and, and come and see this show because you can see the labor and the work that's gone into it. You can see how hard it's been to get a cast strong and capable and full and complete after you know people step in and step out and getting the people that they could for the show itself. It sounds like this is not just a labor of love, but love's labor lost. I don't want that to happen. I want this to be love's labor won because you've come to see the show and we've put butts in seats. And at the end of the day, community theater only exists for a very short, small amount of time in a single solitary space. It is a very single solitary space in the (laughs) RPAC. It is comfortable, close seating if everyone's there. And I really hope to see you on opening night, January 12th. Thank you so much to the three of you for coming and sitting down with me. Thank you so much, Kyle. Thanks for having us. Thank you.